Oh, hey, kiddo. How was the hill? Educational. Oh, learned a new trick? Yeah, the trick to a happy, fulfilling life, maybe. I learned that mountain air unleashes my inner peace. And rip and pow, well, the whole crew's all, yoo, induces spontaneous joy. Okay, uh, that's nice. The Icon Pass lets you do you at 50 destinations worldwide from 249 Adult. Drop in for next winter now and save at IconPass.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the WIM Podcast. Women in Influencer Marketing, or WIM for short, is a first-of-its-kind exclusive networking group made up of inspirational women. This podcast is where we explore influencer marketing, advertising trends, and get real about women in business. Our mission is to network, to foster leaders within this exciting industry, and to share information to make our work stronger. That's where this podcast comes in. We'll bring you fresh perspectives on timely topics facing the industry from expert voices in the space. Find us wherever you download podcasts. And of course, you can always find us at IamWim.com. That's IamWim.com. Hey, everybody. It is so nice to be here with you guys. I just have to express my gratitude. Last week, we had the most listened to episode of all time, which is like incredible. Incredible. So I'm just so thankful for Kate Durkin because I'm sure it had something to do with her. So appreciative that you guys are such a big fan of hers as I am, but like that you tune in. I hope you continue to tune in. I hope that we continue to bring you topics and guests and thoughts and all sorts of everything that just like makes it exciting for you to come here every single week. So with that being said, this week, it's a new type of conversation. We haven't been able to have it before. Very, very cool that Cecilia Boisson joined us this week. Ironically enough, she's in the same borough that I'm in, in Brooklyn, New York, but she's lived all over the world. So we took advantage, I took advantage of that fact and asked her, since she's worked at some of the biggest influencer marketing companies in the world, how the markets are different. And you'll hear that she thinks that there's some markets that are certainly behind the U.S. and things like that, but I always think there's something to learn from everybody. So she has this incredible, unique perspective where she's lived in multiple markets, big markets all over the world, and gives us her perspective and sort of compares them, contrasts them, and it was really interesting. So I'm very excited to bring you guys Cecilia, so enjoy this week's episode. Cecilia, I am so happy to invite you on the show. I know you've also newly joined WIM, so welcome to the group and the organization, but you are certainly no newbie to influencer marketing. So we're excited to have you here. So first and foremost, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, the WIM community is really, really amazing. So much support. And it's, it's just great. It, you know, we're a growing industry. This industry is what, 10 plus years old. And it, it's so interesting to see now how many companies are looking for influencer marketers, whether in-house, whether it's on, you know, the platform side, whether it's on the talent side, it's just been booming. I feel like even more so with COVID. And so this community, it's really amazing. Everybody is helping each other out and especially a strong, you know, sisterhood as well, which is great. Yes, all about that. And you're also like a fellow Brooklynite. So it's wild that we're doing this remotely. I should have like met like a recording studio to just like do this in person, but soon, 
soon we will be able to all yes. meet in person. It'll be really lovely to have that element again. So you have this really awesome background in, you know, influencer marketing and in that you've worked on multiple sides of the industry. A lot of women wanted to do that and haven't necessarily been successful. I would love to just hear in your own words, a little bit about your professional journey and sort of how you ended up to where you are today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like with a lot of, and I feel like probably that's the case with a lot of people with this industry. I landed in this industry uh, really at the beginning. We're talking 2013, 2014, when back when influencers weren't called influencers, they were called bloggers. And I started uh, my career in London. So I lived in London for six years. And my first ever experience working with influencers was actually in-house. I was working for an app that was a, a social media app that no longer exists, but the content concept of the app was truly connecting people together together that shared similar interests. And that was the first time that I tapped into YouTubers and influencers because they had a niche audience about a specific topic. And so I wanted them to promote, you know, the certain groups of people that were talking about a specific topic. Like, for example, we had an LGBTQ focused uh, community of people. And so I reached out to this LGBTQ YouTuber and they were the one that drove the highest amount of downloads, like by far. And it was so interesting to compare, you know, all of the different acquisition strategies that we were doing again back in the day. And truly that one YouTuber had was the one that brought us the most amount of downloads. So that was for me was a bit of an aha moment because I was like, wait, um, we're not spending money because then we weren't really paying as much the influencers. I mean, it was truly, really, really different. You know, we were in Europe too. So we're always, always a couple years behind the US. But I was like, wait, that's crazy. Like, how is this one person driving all these downloads, driving, you know, all these, all their people to come and to download something just because they told them to. And that led me to go on and work at reward style which in Europe, there weren't, again, that many companies that were doing influencer marketing. You know, we're talking six, seven years ago. And I hadn't heard of Reward Style, but they had this one, their European HQ was in London. And so they were looking for someone also to grow the French market. And I'm myself... French American. So I am from France originally. And so I was like, wait, that's a great, you know, a great fit. And I ended up working there almost four years, truly the best, the best years of my career, honestly. And that really, truly like shaped how I think about influencer marketing today. And I think it was also really interesting because this was a company that was really pioneering what, what influencer marketing really looks like now. I think a lot of people that started companies in 2012, 2013, in the influencer marketing space, were really visionaries, in my opinion, and pioneers. And that's exactly what it was. Amber and Baxter, the founders, were really like founded this company, you know, over 10 years ago now. And I was sitting on more of the influencer side uh, of Reward Cell, so more of the talent side. And I was looking after really the European expansion. So really helping all of these amazing European creators YouTubers, bloggers, influencers grow their revenue and grow their business. And I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but that was, I mean, so interesting and made me also realize, you know, how specific each market is. I was really specifically looking after Germany, France, and the UK. And each of those three markets, even just on their own, are extremely different. And so from the influencers, from the content that is being created, and also from the consumer side of things, uh, just a quick example, but like, for example, in Germany, consumers have no problem purchasing luxury goods and luxury items online. Whereas, for example, in France, that's not the case. In France, it's all about slightly more like low cost, like finding the good deal online. That's kind of more like the way that consumer think. I must be French or something. 
<laughs> somewhere like I love a good deal so I can relate to that for sure I, mean, I love a good deal but I think it's also like a kind of an older way of thinking about you know when you were first going online like first e-commerce it was always to find a better deal than offline and I think that sort of stayed the, the stayed true and stayed the, stayed the same way in France and then in the UK the English market is definitely the closest definitely to the American market because of course it's the same language it's the same type of brands really that do really well beauty fashion brands do extremely well online essentially I was working and helping these creators grow their business, even pitching them content ideas for, you know, for YouTube, for Instagram. I mean, it was fascinating. And also truly being there when there was really the transition from blogs to Instagram. And then I moved to New York in 2019. So two years ago, right before COVID. So that has been a crazy ride and a crazy experience, but one that I'm so, so happy about. I mean, I knew I always kind of wanted to move to New York. I was super lucky that I was able to get my boyfriend to come with me. And we both came here in 2019. We had a little bit of months before COVID and then COVID happened and everything was crazy. (laughs) But I uh, originally moved to New York working for uh, more of a SaaS platform, which is Octoly, which for those that are not familiar, it's a slightly more micro-influencer gifting platform in more of the beauty industry. And at Rewarsa, I was working a lot more within fashion and lifestyle brands and I think at Octoly, it's a lot more beauty focused because, of course, as we know, with beauty, uh, you have to try the products. And that's why so many of the you know, beauty boxes are so extremely popular today because consumers want to test and try. But what was super interesting is that it was only about micro influencers because there was no hate campaigns. It was truly just they would be gifted products in exchange for posts, in exchange for reviews and posts. And so that was super interesting. That was also new, a new kind of facet of the, the industry that I experienced. And then all of last year, it was, you know, working a little bit at Village Marketing on the more agency side. In the agency side, I hadn't truly like, quote unquote, done that as well. And then venturing out on my own, you know, towards the end of last year, thinking, you know, I have this interesting background. I think a lot of my friends also in New York that are also, a lot of them are entrepreneurs, have their brand. We're like, you know, we would love your help with some of our campaigns. We just don't know exactly what to do, what type of influencers to cast. Can you help us? And so I really need that complete shift between working more on the talent side to then going on to really helping brands. And it's really, really interesting to do both because I think you really have such a better understanding of why influencers request certain things because I've been on their side and why brands also request certain things and what is expected for both parties and how can you make the two kind of work better together. So I can only imagine during the transition from each role to each role, there's like some soul searching happening. And is this the right move for me? I mean, I've been there, right? I'm sure a lot of people watching, listening have been there as well. When you made that final transition to work for yourself, talk us through what that was like and what ultimately made you take the leap. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So many moments of doubt, honestly. I think like a lot of people and I think women in general, I had like huge imposter syndrome of like, am I really doing this? Are people going to really take me seriously? And I've only really done more of the brand side for like a year and a half. Like, is that even you know long enough for me to really justify kind of working with brands? But I think what has been really, really amazing for me is I have a huge, I think, support system and network really in New York. Uh, again, fellow entrepreneurs, fellow friends that 
said really gave me the best advice, whether they had a service-based company or a brand. And so they've, of course, gone through their own like sets of challenges. But one of my really dear friends has an amazing jewelry company, and she was my first client. She really is the one that approached me and said, hey, like, I know you maybe are thinking of, you know, doing something else, or maybe you're not sure. Look, if you have a bit of time, I would love for you to maybe help me a little bit with my brand and help me with some strategy. Like, we don't really know how to work with influencers. We've done a little bit of gifting here and there, but that's about it. And I was like, yes, of course I can help you. And I started helping her and it started working really, really well. And I was like, wait, I can do this for myself. I can do this for my friend. I can do this for other brands. And there's been also a lot of great word of mouth where I haven't really had to outreach as much, uh, which is, I mean, truly the best scenario, but a lot of it is just word of mouth and recommendation. And I think the fact that when you have your own consultancy, you get to choose really the brand that you want to work with. And for me, it's really supporting small businesses. It's really working with small to medium sized brands. And a lot of the time they're women, women owned and women founded. And a lot of the time they're not VC backed. They've been built from the ground up. That to me was so important uh, because I just wanted to support them. And especially during the pandemic, so many brands have had to shift their focus and their strategy and the way that they allocated their budget. And a lot of it went towards influencer marketing. So it was just sort of a right time. And, you know, after working for, you know, seven years in the industry, I was like, okay, maybe I can do it. And I've been doing this for a year. And I mean, it feels like it's been only two months, but it's been a year already. And it's amazing. I love it. If you could do this during a pandemic, you can probably do this anytime, right? We've all sort of seen our industry like knock on wood is like fairly pandemic proof. In fact, it's sort of been thriving throughout all of this, which is fantastic. But like, yeah, like through the doubts, through the imposter syndrome, through the fear, you've come out the other side like a full year later. Um, I love what you were saying specifically about that your first client was somebody who sort of like approached you, somebody that was part of your network, and you sort of are like cultivating a clearer sense of like who your client is. I think that's so important. Talk to us a little bit about that. I think that people who are curious about going out on their own consulting, like that's probably the number one question, right? It's like, I want to do this, but like, how do I get my first client? I mean, that's a huge thing. I think it's fantastic in a lot of instances where you can sort of look to what you've already built historically versus reinventing the wheel and just cold you know, getting in touch with people and saying, hey, can you be my client, you know, to people that you've already known your network? Like, what was that process like? What were those conversations like? And did it take much convincing once she or he approached you to work together? Yeah, no, and it's always funny. And that's why I think it's so great when honestly, when women support other women, because truly, I don't think I would have gone out on my own had my friend not reached out to me and said, hey, like, I think you'd be a perfect fit for us to help us with with our strategy. Like, I didn't even think I was ready at all to be, you know, an entrepreneur. I didn't, I didn't think, I thought maybe I'm too young, maybe I'm not ready. And what I think is an amazing, what was great for me is that it started like a really, really small campaign, a small brand, small budget, meaning maybe low risk and hopefully high reward. And I think that was kind of a perfect scenario because you're starting small. You're kind of, you need to bank a few wins. I have found like my first six months was really, truly almost convincing myself that I could do it. And I needed to get some of those wins in so that I I could reassure myself to think, okay, maybe I can go after maybe a little bit bigger brands now because, okay, I've done it a few times. I've seen how it all all works, how it all operates. And I think that was the perfect way to kind of dipping my toes in it 
brand was to, to work with a small brand with, you know, a small team. It's two women who have this jewelry brand. That's it. Their business almost looked like mine in a way too. You know, and in fact, of course, that it's a great friend. It definitely helped, but it was almost added pressure to that it was a friend because I was like, wait, like this friend is going to be trusting me with some of their marketing budget. I need to do a really, really good job, you know, convincing them that they did the right decision in hiring me. But all this to say, I think starting small to kind of bang those wins in and kind of get a little bit more confident was, I think, what really truly made me, you know, want to continue this and made me more confident on a day to day basis. I love that. Like we all need different pushes. We all need different things to get us to where we need to be to take a leap of faith and being honest about what you need and moving through that, like not judging it, you know, and how awesome it is to have a friend that would help you get there. I also hear you on that, though. You're like, I mean, as a friend, and it sounds great. Like she helped me get there. And she wanted to hire me. But like, yeah, I can imagine there's added pressure, right? Like they say, don't work with friends, family, stuff like that. So you know that it could make the relationship a little cloudy, even if it doesn't, like you said, it's pressure you want to do right by your friends. I can only imagine that sounds very real. And so you did it and you're doing it. And yeah, you're creating case studies for yourself, proofs of success. And you got to track those things too, right? You got to get all those nuggets of success so that you can then share them with potential future clients and certainly, you know, build yourself up to know I can do this. And in fact, I'm doing it as we speak, right? I also love that you've worked in multiple markets. I find that that is pretty unique of the people that I speak with. Maybe they know their European market, but they don't necessarily know the US market or vice versa. And you've sort of worked in all of them. You were talking about nuancy differences between, you know, selling or buying patterns between buying patterns in France and Germany. And I've been to both of those countries and I wouldn't know that (laughs) based on my experience. So it's cool that you have a great understanding of that. I'd love to hear more about just how influencer marketing differs in different markets that you're familiar with. Yeah, no, absolutely. The three countries that I definitely know the most in Europe are France, Germany, and and the UK, because those are really, truly, I would say, the biggest markets outside of Scandinavia uh, for influencer marketing. So those were the three that I've worked with the most. And I mean, they are so, so different from a consumer perspective, from a brand perspective, and from an influencer and content perspective. They're really, really different. Let's say we combine those three countries and we compare it with the US. I would say one of the biggest difference is, and it's going to sound so silly, in in the U.S. because that's a given here, but it's really not in Europe. It's that in the U.S. everybody has a credit card or multiple credit cards. The concept of credit is really not a thing in Europe. Like people don't have credit cards. People have debit cards. And what it means is that you're going to be buying something online truly if you can afford it. So you only purchasing something based on what you have on your bank account. So that has a huge impact on the way that you think about e-commerce because uh, people are going to be saving up, you know, to buy something online. They're not going to use their three credit cards and then think, okay, maybe I can't afford this, but I'm still going to buy it. And I think that makes a huge difference in like just sales and revenue in general. And a lot of the times, maybe in the U.S., people don't necessarily realize that. And even for me personally, I moved here two years ago and I had to get completely, you know, I had to adapt my myself completely to that credit card system because it is truly so, so different. Um, so that's one thing that's very, very different. And I think it's really in terms of the, the 
the platforms of choice, I would say YouTube is actually huge in Europe. And I think maybe also people don't realize that. And I almost feel like there's more variety of content because I find that in the US, YouTubers are a lot of the times are beauty focused or there's a lot of interior and DIY type of content. And of course, there's fashion, but I find that there's fashion when it's under more of a, like a Vogue or a like kind of more big publication. That's the fashion content that we have. Whereas I feel like in Europe, there's so many fashion YouTubers, like specifically fashion. And for brands, I think it's a little bit more affordable to work with those fashion YouTubers in Europe as it is in you in the US. Because as we know, in the US, YouTubers tend to be more expensive because it's video content usually exclusive content and dedicated content and tends to, to be more pre- to be pricier. Whereas in the other way around, Instagram, to work with people on Instagram, it's a little bit more affordable in the US and it's a little bit more expensive in Europe. So, I mean, you have all these variety and I'm even talking about Europe as if it was one big place, but then you drill it down to each country. It has its own specificity. And I think truly the US is like, I would say, you know, five years ahead of France, maybe Germany, maybe Southern Europe in terms of this space. Maybe it's two, three years ahead of the UK, uh, but it is definitely ahead. And that's what's really, really fun for me, to be honest, because I'm seeing what the trends are here. And I'm talking to a lot of clients or brands in Europe, in France, in the UK. And they're like, okay, you know, they're, they're still just doing gifting campaigns most of the time. Like they're just kind of now starting to do paid FTC compliance and things like that is not really as taken as seriously there as it is in the U.S. So you can just feel like in the U.S. everything has just been more organized. It's more legit, quote unquote, here. It's just a more of a bigger business. And in Europe and a lot of countries like France or even like Italy, Spain, people still look at influencers with like, really, you're going to be working with influencers. Do you think there's going to be really a good image for your brand? Or do you feel like it's going to make sense? There's still a little bit of that. And people are now just kind of coming around, understanding truly the power that they have and how important it is to integrate them into your strategy. So by working and living in the U.S., I feel like I have almost like a look in the future that I can take that and bring it back to smaller regions, smaller countries and tell them, hey, like, guys, this is what you need to be doing right now because this is what's working in America. So interesting. And then I hear about places like China that are ahead of what we're doing. So I don't know. I mean, ahead, behind, whatever. It's all subjective, I guess. So I'm curious, you know, what have you seen that's been done overseas that has worked particularly well and maybe even perhaps better than in the state? Like, what can we learn from them and what they're doing? The first thing really that comes to mind is those fashion YouTube channels. They're such, again, they're really, really different than the content that I see in the U.S. Yeah, how are they different? I mean, I think you're describing like higher end fashion versus lower end fashion. But like, yeah, how else are they different? I think it's more like you have this, I'm going to give her a shout out, but you have this one amazing YouTuber who's British. Her name is Lizzie Hatfield. Her Instagram handle is handle is shot from the streets. Her YouTube channel is Lizzie Hatfield, but typically like her channel, I don't think I've seen something like that in the US. And her channel is really like her whole concept is about testing basics. So she'll try on, she'll have like one, she's comparing like white t-shirts and she'll try so many different brands, so many different price points, and she'll style them in a way that's really, really cool and really interesting. And it's exactly, I think the content that people are really, truly wanting to get, like it's more editorial, but it's approachable. And that's of course one example, but there's so many others that are like that. 
And that's why a lot of fashion brands are really only working with those YouTubers. Maybe they're working with those YouTubers on YouTube, or maybe they're working with those YouTubers on Instagram. But that variety of content, and maybe it has also to do with the style too. You know, the European style is, is more like darker colors. It's all about like the white tee, the jeans. You know, it's very like the French style, quote unquote. There's more of that. And then with the German YouTubers, they will have like beautiful, you know, uh, videos about luxury items. And that does extremely well as well. You know, thinking of someone like Leone, who was a pioneer, who was one of the first, you know, influencers. There's amazing German bloggers out there, influencers that all happen to have, at one point, maybe they don't have it anymore, but they had a YouTube channel. And they all, a lot of them started on YouTube, which is also really interesting. So that's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of what's a bit different. But I would say that it's really, even though I hate to admit it, but it is more the other way around. It's really more what I see to be different in the U.S. and what is working here that then tends to translate. There aren't many faces people are excited to see first thing in the morning before they've even had their coffee. But the McDonald's drive through workers who take your order on the way to work have almost all of those faces. Because nothing brings more joy in the morning than a 99 cents any size iced coffee. Pair it with a glazed full apart donut for a truly great morning. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Only available until 11 a.m. Slide over to Europe and typically what is working here will work in Europe maybe two, three years because maybe now the market isn't even as mature yet, you know? But what are those things? Because it's interesting. Like I look at certain campaigns and people are stuck in their ways and, you know, only activating on Instagram. And I don't know, I've got gripes with how we do it. What really stands out to you as things that you would maybe, you know, share with clients overseas? You're like, you should really look into this. This is something that you may not be doing yet. That's been working and successful. Yeah. Before I talk more about like a specific campaign example, just the fact that, for example, what you're seeing right now on Netflix, where some people like the Home Edit or Studio McGee, they have their own shows on Netflix and all these content creators, they're really going from like the small screen to like the medium size screen on Netflix. That transition to me is really, really interesting. And to me, that means that we are consuming content in such a different way. You know, YouTube today is really more the way that you would consume television and Netflix today is like, you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoe of whoever's thinking of the content on Netflix, they're thinking, okay, all these people that follow them will want to go to Netflix and subscribe because they love those creators. So like that, for example, to me is like, not to even to mention like Kiara Ferrani, who just had, you know, an Amazon whose documentary, I think she just announced that she's going to be doing a reality show, the D'Amelio TikTok sisters that are signed on, on Hulu. So you're seeing this popping up and that hasn't really happened as much in Europe yet. So there's just, that's already like, there's years apart in the way that people understand how important those people are and how relevant and how influential those people are. Is Netflix and Hulu and all those streaming platforms, are they as big there as they are here? The biggest difference is that I would say in a lot of European countries, it's mainly Netflix and that's it. And then maybe there's one other. There isn't as much variety. Like here we have like five, six different. And in Europe, looking just at France, for example, they have Netflix and then they have something that's kind of an equivalent of HBO Max. And that's kind of it. There isn't, and maybe they have Amazon Prime, but they don't use it, I would say, as much. But here we have five, six different streaming platforms, whereas in, in Europe, it's everything really is on Netflix. So Netflix has such a good example of a brand that truly understood going into these different markets, how to tap into those different cultures and different markets. Because the French Netflix has nothing to do with the American Netflix. The Italian Netflix has nothing to do. UK Netflix, 
more or less the same. German Netflix has nothing to do. Like, it's so interesting. People don't realize that because in the US, you just consume the content that you have. When I go home in France, I look at Netflix and it's like the content is more or less all French and it's French shows, French movies. And there's Netflix originals that are specifically made for the French market. So like, that's such a good example of a brand that understood that they needed to be specific about each of those countries. That's so interesting. Just because I feel like that is a perfect example of how a company, Netflix curates the feed. I mean, we don't really necessarily think of it in that same way, but like, of course they do. And like my Netflix wouldn't even look the same as my, you know, my mom's Netflix, you know, and we could be living in the same house even if we want. And like, it's just, it's really based on, you know, curating it for you and their own algorithm and stuff like that. Even in terms of like, I hear you, I definitely see see more influencers sort of converting into, you know, having shows. It's been a while now since they've been having products of their own, things like that. I mean, one thing I love to see is just having influencers who can truly diversify their revenue streams. And we've been saying this for the longest time, you know, influencers sort of put their eggs in the fully and exclusively in the brand partnership basket are not really great business people, in my opinion. And also, I don't even know that that's really attractive to brands. I feel like more and more brands are looking for influencers who aren't just influencers. That's like the requirement that I see on a lot of like castings and stuff that are going out. Have you seen similar to that? Oh my God, so much. And I think one of the biggest trends also that came out of last year is that I think now brands want to associate themselves with people that are spokespeople, with that really defend specific cause. You know, I think during Black Lives Matter, we saw so many of those influencers that really came out and really defended the cause and really stepped up and said, you know, I'm going to really educate my audience. I'm actually going to really make a difference and not just promoting certain products, but actually truly using my influence for good. And you have seen those trends really pop up all over the world. There was this huge YouTuber in Brazil that was someone that really went neck and neck with the president and that was truly like not supporting the president with it the way that it handled COVID. I mean, you just have those people that really, I think, are using their platform in a positive way, or at least they're trying to. And I think brands are looking for that and how that is really different, I think, right now in Europe is that I'm going to be talking more about the French market specifically because I know this one so well, but that is not yet really, truly understood and maybe accepted yet. Because I think in the eyes of many people, it's like, wait, who are you to tell me, you know, about politics or about this and that? Like, how legitimate are you to tell me about those topics? Like, you were selling me, you know, a face cream two seconds ago, like, you know, but actually, no, it's not that. It's like, those people have a platform and it's like how you use it that makes you interesting. And I totally agree with you with people that are really diversifying their business. And actually, that was a huge part of reward style too, because a lot of it was to empower those people to actually have kind of a steady income with affiliate on top of having, you know, those brand deals and other things. And I think right now we are seeing those influencers that are starting brands that are going into so many different ventures. And I agree that that should be a huge quality or something to look for for brands when they're casting. And also just, you know, like just influencers who, I mean, I heard this years ago and it resonated with me so much. So many influencers have never had any other job before being an influencer. They don't even know what like what it is to, you know, report to somebody or to have deadlines 
deadlines or like any sort of like business acumen that we all maybe take for granted that we know because we've had jobs before and reported to people and work for organizations. They don't necessarily know these things. So like, you know, we can't expect them to be like master creatives and community builders and also expert business people. So I think it's important to speak in conversations like this where like maybe there's an influencer out there listening or maybe there's a talent manager out there listening who's advising that influencer and like absolutely always diversifying your revenue is key to many successful businesses. This is certainly not excluded from that. I'd love to dig into a little bit of like the affiliate revenue stream since you have experience there. It certainly has been in the news, read an article, it was like the top nine affiliate marketing platforms of 2021. It's like a Business Insider article. And most of them I had heard reward style was certainly one of them. They're like LTK now. They sort of rebranded over the years. And there were like a few that I had actually never heard of before. I guess like to start my question to you is like the influencers who are doing really, really well in affiliate. And I've heard stories of people making well over six figures in affiliate alone. What are they doing different? Like how are they being so successful at affiliate marketing? <laughs> I love this question. Well, I think the first thing that I will say even before diving into this is that affiliate, whether it was through a platform like a reward style or truly like an affiliate network, that was really the first way for influencers to be like kind of financially independent in a way because they were really the ones controlling, you know, how much they were going to be using affiliate in order to kind of get their own income without it being solely dependent on brand partnerships and those flat fees. So I think that's really interesting to remember is that affiliate is really a win-win for both brands and talents because of course brands are only paying influencers when those influencers are selling. Um, so that's number one. And I think number two I guess those that are doing extremely well have simply just nurtured an amazing audience that is really, really engaged. And, and typically, actually, those that do really well are not the huge influencers. They're really the micro plus influencers, like the 50, 60, 78 thousand follower. If they have a much higher follower count, it's because they've grown with their audience along the way. And also they've been extremely consistent. I think someone that does really well with affiliates, someone that has been doing it for years and people are so used to either them using an LTK or using, you know, at the end of the day, it's really just a link that we're clicking on and purchasing. So from the consumer side of things, it doesn't change at all what they're doing. But of course, for the talent, I think it makes a huge difference. And another thing too, is it really empowers them with the data. When an influencer uses affiliate and they're seeing that they're converting and they're seeing the commission coming through, they're able to know their worth. They're able to know, okay, wait, I'm actually driving quite a bit of sales here. If I'm making, you know, this amount in commission, I can only imagine how much I'm driving in revenue for this brand. Uh, I should be charging more, you know, for my upcoming project. And I think before this, there was no way for the talent to know anything. So with LTK, of course, they can see that they have like some reporting and analytics where they can see that with affiliate networks, they can see that, you know, like a share sale and a win, they'll be able to know how much commission they're making, they'll be able to see some data, and that really empowers them. And I always tend to ask actually, a lot of the time to the talent agent or to the influencer directly, like, you know, what's your conversion rate on LTK? You know, are you doing well there? Because that for me will be such a good indication of if the objective of a campaign is to be conversion, you know, whether or not be a true good converter or not. 
And that's something that like, oh, I feel so strongly about this when it comes to like training your audience to buy from you. I mean, if you're just posting a bunch of lifestyle photos with like an emoji by it, and it's like a beautiful landscape, or you on a beach, or you like with your adorable daughter, and it's just like, it's pretty content. And it's like, it could be art. I mean, I don't mean to undervalue it, but like, it's not full of necessarily like substance. And it's certainly not trying to sell something. Then <laughs> when a sponsored post comes around, it feels so much more jarring. They're not so used to it. And it just, it doesn't feel like when I talk to like a girlfriend of mine, I just have certain girlfriends who like, they're always ones to recommend the coolest stuff that they've found, you know? And I'm like, no, no, no. I want to like, give me the good stuff. Give me like, what are you using? What do you love? Ralph's friend's like a makeup artist. Of course I want to go to her and know what she uses because I trust her. I I don't want to do that research. And I just want you to tell me everything that I need to buy. And then I just assume that I'm going to love it. There's nothing different when it comes to influencer marketing. And so when you know, you talk about affiliate sales, it is an opportunity for all of the things that you listed to get that data. So few influencers actually analyze it. So few, it's such a missed opportunity. So few influencers use it, which is a missed opportunity to like get their audience familiar with all sorts of brands that they use in everyday life from, you know, hair dryers to cars, like literally anything that you could buy and, and purchase. And then like, I would assume that it's also a missed opportunity to just like get on brands radars and to be able to build case studies of successful sales and that fact that like it's actually not so much necessarily about the influencers affinity towards that product but their audience's affinity towards that product because that's when they're going to actually see sales you know really spike and conversions and stuff so why do you think some influencers don't use affiliate <laughs> Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, again, to be earning a decent amount with affiliate every month, you do have to be extremely consistent, which means that you do have a style of content and a type of content that's really commercial. It's really your content for someone that's doing well with affiliate is going to be truly about linking all of your, whether it's fashion, beauty, interior, or whatever it may be. This is the style of content also that's really about promoting your product's kind of constantly. So if your content is not really that, and maybe your content is a little bit more creative, or maybe you're truly more of a content creator, because now as we know, brands are really hiring influencers truly only for their content sometimes. So of course, it's really different, I think, in this, the type of influencers that would do well with affiliate in that sense. You really do have to be linking out your products constantly uh, and to have kind of trained a little bit your audience to, to be used to that and to be hungry for more. And there are some influencers that do it so, so well, because you're always like, oh, I want to know what she bought. I want to know what she bought for her home. I want to know what she bought for her recent, you know, shopping spree, whatever. It's a type of influencer is what I mean. It's really a, a specific type of influencer that does well. And I think it's okay for not for all influencers to do well with affiliate. There's so many other ways to diversify. We obviously talked about a lot of those talents, like starting a brand, but there's such a variety. I think I follow someone in France, but she has a book club. I know a lot of influencers are having that as well. Like she has a truly amazing book club with, with a huge community and that's kind of her thing. And she has an amazing newsletter dedicated to books and she gets that sponsored. So that's an extra revenue stream. So there's that, you know, like, I think it's all about having a niche and tapping into it. We know some influencers are also starting podcasts, have amazing podcasts. Uh, that's an extra revenue stream. So there's just so many ways to diversify. I think it all just has to be kind of true to what the content is about, you know? And like you said, if someone that never promotes anything, all of a sudden they have a sponsored post, it will kind of feel a bit weird for the audience. I don't think that's going to work as well. So I think it's all about staying kind of true to your sort of editorial style of content. 
It is. And also just like making sure that it stays in your tone of voice, which is really difficult. I've been on the side, you know, advocating on behalf of a talent when a brand butchers, like I'll say when something is so redlined, it's like bloodied the caption where, you know, they submit something, it's in their tone of voice. It sounds really compelling. It hits all the points and yet they like butcher it. And they're like, no, let's say it like this instead. And it's like, what? (laughs) Like, what? Why? I mean, like, why are you hiring them? Then they're not a billboard. And like, why would you change that? They obviously said it. And to take that even a step further, there are a significant amount of influencers who work on so many branded content. And they're so used to brands butchering their captions and coming back with so many edits that I feel like they even have started to succumb to that. And that when they submit captions for brands, it starts to be a little more vanilla, like a little just it sounds branded. And they're like, oh, but this will get approved more easily. And I'm like, no, 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 like push against that. It's just not going to perform as well. And we all know that like putting the branded sponsored, you know, hashtags and the tool, like it already sort of like less visibility already. So it's sort of like a continuous fight, to be honest, to be able to have branded content do well. So I think it's a whole other conversation, one that I hope all of us have, because it's doing all this work, but we're combating a lot against a lot of things that are sort of against us. Um, And, you know, the platforms, let's be real, they're just hoping that you're going to boost it and spend money to them so that they'll be the ones to save the day and get that visibility on your post. It's such an art. It's certainly not a science. And there's so much more that can be done. So before we go for today, I love asking our guests just some like rapid fire get to know you questions. It's a great opportunity. You know, we've learned a lot about your awesome professional journey and a little bit about you and that you flipped all over. You're now in Brooklyn, all these things, but I want our community to get to know you a little bit better now that you're part of it. So are you ready for some get to know you questions? I am. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Question number one, and this is, you know, in the new role as a solopreneur, what would you say is currently the best part of your job? Oh, I mean, I think it's really just to have that flexibility of waking up every day, deciding today I, for some reason, want to be working for 10 hours straight because I want to power through. And then tomorrow, I only want to be working in the morning and the afternoon, I'm going to take my afternoon because I don't know, I want to treat myself, go get my nails done. (laughs) Go to the hairdresser. I don't know. To have that flexibility, honestly, like you can't put a price tag on that. I think it's really, really what hooks you and what is addictive also, because although some you have to put yourself your own boundaries and you also have to kind of discipline yourself to stay on schedule, do you have that flexibility? And that's truly so amazing. And especially now that we're able to work from anywhere even more so. But when you have your own, especially when you have a service-based company, I mean, truly one day I'm working from home one day I'm working from a co-working space tomorrow if I want to go to Europe and I want to work from there I can nobody's going to tell me anything so it's really truly the flexibility that flexibility yes 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 all of that for sure (laughs) so my next question for you do you consider yourself an introvert or more of an extrovert I think definitely an extrovert (laughs) really okay why Yeah. And I think that's really something. I mean, I think I always knew this about myself. Like I just love being around people. I really truly fuel my energy with people. Like my favorite thing is to go to a party where I don't know anybody and I'm going to be meeting a lot of people. That would be like my favorite activity. Oh my God, it gives me anxiety thinking about it. 
<laughs> we introverts need people like you who are extroverted. Oh my gosh. What else makes you such like a hundred percent an extrovert? Something I realized last year when we were more, you know, under lockdown and quarantine during COVID, it was really hard for me not to have people, you know, meeting people, talking to people face to face. And my boyfriend is the same as me. Like we both truly love being around groups of people a lot. And we were both like, thank God we have each other. Like I would have never been able to do to live on my own, for example, during this period. Like I think that I would have been really sad if, if I had been on my own. And I think it's truly just like, a, again, it's more of an energy thing. I am so energized if I go to an event, if I go to a dinner party, if I'm with groups of people that fuels me. And I think that someone that's maybe more of an introvert that gives them a lot of that drains them. And I think that's probably like the biggest difference. So yeah, I would say I'm definitely an extrovert. Well, you're definitely in the right city because like the city that never sleeps, there's so much always going on in New York. I love it. My Another question, do you like or dislike surprises? I don't like. Interesting. <laughs> really? Yes, I, I'm not really like a patient person. And also I like kind of to control things truly and to be things. I like to have a bit of a control on what happens to me in my life and everything. And so surprises, I mean, as much as I love, you know, when it's your birthday, when it's, you know, you have a gift that maybe you didn't anticipate something like that, like that's always a fun and nice surprise, but I like to control. I'm kind of a control freak. So I don't like to be surprised because then I'm always thinking, oh, if I had done it myself, I would have maybe done it differently. <laughs> You could say better. You can say better. It's fine. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, no. And I hate like when I was a kid, for example, like it would drive me nuts to having to wait for like, you know, Christmas and having to wait for your gift. Like I was the type of person like I was looking for my gift to know what it was going to be. You know, your parents are trying to hide them desperately. And they're like, oh, she got into the gifts again. We can't hide sure. them from her. Just leave them alone. Let Santa come. hundred percent. I was like, I want to know, you know, I, I think, you know what it is? I think I'm just really I'm more of a curious person. And so I, I like to know, I like to know in advance, things like that. But sometimes I'm also good at letting go, you know, sometimes it's good to have a little bit, I mean, you need elements of surprise. I mean, I think we've just lived through a lot of different surprising moments in our lives in the past 18 months. So, you know, you also have to be able to let go and, and go with the flow. I mean, you can't control it all. Honestly, it's impossible. Amen to that. And my last question, and this is simply based on the fact that you've lived in so many different places. I'm so curious. What is your favorite vacation spot? Ooh, vacation spot. I think, you know, I am super, super lucky that I've been able to go to a lot of different places in Europe, especially growing up. When you grow up in a country like France, it's a small country, but there's just an abundance of places that you can go to. You have the mountain, you have the sea, Mediterranean, the Atlantic. I mean, it's very, very different from one coast to the next. But I um, I grew up going to this small island in France. It's on the west coast of France. It's called Ile de Ré. And it's the prettiest place. It's There are no cars you can cycle everywhere you eat delicious seafood it's very coastal it feels so far and remote from everything and it's I think truly one of my favorite places I'm definitely gonna look up this but I love and I love that you're saying a place that I've never heard of before I that's awesome and like you're from there so I completely trust you have you been to Governor's Island since you've lived in New York I have not, but interestingly, I just went to Fire Island maybe a few weeks ago, and that to me was like, oh, I love this place. Like, that was so, I love small, kind of more remote places on vacation. I don't want to be hyper-connected. I want to be able to check out. I want to be able to feel kind of far away. Fire Island was actually an amazing place that I recently discovered in New York, and I love that in New York, you take a car for two hours, and you have so many places that you can go to. You know, the sea, upstate New York, you have hikes, you have amazing 
amazing beaches. That what's is really what makes the city so special in my opinion. For sure. Yeah, getting out of it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you live here long enough, like it's the best city, but like every six months or so, you gotta like you gotta see the sky, you gotta like not see buildings around you all the time. Um, it's such a real thing. But yeah, Fire Island, I've actually been once, but they have hotel like not really I mean they have some hotels there, mostly like summer homes and but they have cars there. Governor's Island, no cars. So it sort of reminds me of what you were saying before. They have like concerts and stuff there, and like yeah, so definitely check out governor's island i'm gonna look up where you said in france what is it called again the island it's called Ile de ray Ile de ray i'm gonna look this up cecilia thank you so much I feel like i learned so much you have such a great perspective on all of this and i'm sure that a lot of our listeners really appreciated it as well if our listeners want to get in touch with you and connect what's the best way for them to do so yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can pop my info in, in maybe our Slack that we have, but I have uh, my Instagram. I think Instagram or LinkedIn really is where I spend a lot of time. And my work email is Cecilia at believe-influence.com. Uh, so that everybody can contact me over email as well. Perfect. And we will list all of those in the show notes. Um, Cecilia, you've been wonderful. I'm so excited to see you around WIM. That's where everyone can reach you too. If you're a member of WIM, just they'll see you in the Slack channel. They'll see you now in the Facebook community. Um, I'm super grateful that you were joining us and for everyone. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we got to have you back. Check out our website for more ways to get involved, including all the information you need about joining our collective. You can check out all the information at IamWim.com. That's IamWim, double I, dot com. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, a rating. But the most important thing that we can ask you to do is to share this podcast. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Tune in next week. There aren't many faces people are excited to see first thing in the morning before they've even had their coffee. But the McDonald's drive through workers who take your order on the way to work have almost all of those faces. Because nothing brings more joy in the morning than a 99 cents any size iced coffee. Pair it with a glazed full apart donut for a truly great morning. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Only available until 11 a.m. Charles didn't have just any coronary artery disease. He had Charles's coronary artery disease. Michelle didn't have just any heart attack. She had Michelle's heart attack. At VCU Health Poly Heart Center, we know every heart is unique. And as Virginia's only nationally ranked heart program, we'll keep them beating healthy and strong. VCU Health Poly Heart Center. Learn more at vcuhealth.org slash heart.